0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is Monday, January the 30th, 2023, another Monday in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States, thinking about the future. Uh, it's a city which has spent its time maybe not so much thinking as making the future for better or worse. We've done a number of shows on the future recently, and particularly in terms of our relations with other species. We did one with the uh, Canadian uh, technologist Karen Backer on her new book, uh, The Sounds of Life, which imagines a future, not too distant future, in which we're going to be able to Um, talk to other species, so the boundaries, the linguistic boundaries at least, between us and other species will be broken down. It's a theme we've dealt with in lots of other contexts recently in the show, particularly with the very distinguished American philosopher, Martha Nussbaum, who has a new book out called Justice for Animals, Our Collective Responsibility. Seems as if, just as we're discovering, that we might be able to talk to the animals. uh, Listen to them and they can listen to us. We're beginning to recognize our own moral responsibility. That's 2023. But imagine 60,000 years in the future. Uh, What happens when we can quite literally uplift animals to a state of self-awareness? This is one of the Dizzying visions articulated uh, in a new uh, science fiction novel, The Terraformers, by my guest, Annalie Newitz, who is appearing to us from San Francisco, not too far away from uh, me. And they said to me before we went live that we're living, she, uh, not she, they and I, you see, I almost slipped on up on that one, Annalie, Um, that they and I are living in a terraformed city. So uh, Annalee, perhaps we might begin with the idea of San Francisco as the future, quite literally as a, as a terraformed city.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting to think about, isn't it? Because we often consider cities to be just kind of Um, a bunch of boxes that we just stick down on a piece of land and like, uh, like Legos or something, but actually cities are often really deeply um, interconnected with shifts in the land, so in San Francisco where we live, um, the beautiful Marina District, which is famous for its lovely walk along the water, uh, is actually mostly built on top of landfill. So that beautiful walk you're actually cruising across a hundred-year-old garbage that was used to expand that area. It was a very uh, lucrative um, idea on the part of the city because, of course, the you know waterfront property is uh, easy to sell. And actually, when we had the Loma Prieta earthquake here back in the '90s. Um, A lot of the very fancy houses in the marina sank into the ground because that landfill uh, couldn't withstand the shaking and it liquefied. And so um, luckily, these were mostly people who could afford to rebuild their houses. But this is something that's happening in lots and lots of cities where you may not realize that what you're standing on is not actually original ground. It's been put in to uh, supplement what was already there.
0: And you're in the business, and at least in a metaphorical sense, of um, reminding us that the ground we're standing on, Anna-Lee, is not very firm. Um, it's terra-firm. Um, and you imagine a world 60,000 years in the future in which we can quite literally uplift animals. And of course, cities and everything else are also uplifted. It's um, It's a very ambitious vision. Why did you Choose 60,000 years. It's an awful long time.
1: It's slightly arbitrary, but this is a book about taking a barren rock, a, a you know, a planet that is not at all um, developed with any kind of atmosphere and turning it into an earth-like world complete with lush ecosystems and lots of animals and plants. And I knew that um, none of those technologies, or at least only about, you know, of those technologies exist now. So I thought, you know, 60,000 years seems like a nice, healthy amount of time that humanity and all of its trappings might have completely transformed. And um, another reason why I kind of arbitrarily picked 60,000 years is that um, some uh, hypotheses about how humans spread out across the globe From our origins in Africa all the way down to Australia and to the Americas. Some of the hypotheses suggest that humans started using reed boats around 60 or 50,000 years ago to do that. And so I thought, well, maybe that was the dawn of exploration for humans. So, you know, that's a kind of a nice um, cushion to have, like trying to imagine the difference between those humans 60,000 years ago and their reed boats, you know, going from Southeast Asia down to Australia. Um, how different we are from them, but also, we yeah, are not so different from them in a lot of ways. We're still exploring and um, trying to find new places to live.
0: Yeah, I wonder whether the, the future you're imagining, the so-called love letter to the future, that's the blurb your publishers gave, I'm not sure if you think of it as a love letter, um, or if it is a love letter, it's a peculiar kind, Um, I'm not sure whether it might happen actually faster. I mean, we did a show recently with the Tufts University uh, urban expert, Justin Hollander. He has a new book out, The First City on Mars, An Urban Planner's Guide to Settling the Red Planet, which is anything but science fiction, which is very practical about how we humans are going to uh, we should uh, settle the first uh, city on, on, on Mars. I mean, this stuff's happening now, isn't it, Annalie?
1: I mean, certainly plans for it are happening now. That's very true. And I think that the kind of um, early stages of the technologies we might need exist. Um, in my novel, the reason why I set it so far in the future is I wanted it to be a very lived-in experience of humans not on planet Earth and so um, I was imagining that humans had started terraforming other planets long before the beginning of this um, this novel and so um, but as for what a realistic timeline would be I mean we just can't know for sure I, my my expectation is that humans will be living at extremely low population sizes off world you know relatively soon like in the next hundred years but for us to develop, to develop a whole planet to bring it from rock to Earth-like properties, um, you know that I think requires technology that we may not have for a very long time. Uh,
0: the book has been embraced; uh, everyone loves it. Uh, the Washington Post, in the headline, described it as a as a dazzling look at the distant future. Um, if you're describing. Uh, Sixty thousand years in the future, hmm It's not hard to dazzle, is it? Because it's a dazzling time frame. But I, I guess the the challenge about writing or imagining a world sixty thousand or, or worlds sixty thousand years in the future is to is is to make it familiar, understandable for us humans in twenty twenty three. Is that fair?
1: I think that's right, and I've I've said. Uh, in a couple of other contexts that, you know, when you have a world that's that distant in the future, it's almost like a secondary world. It's like a fantasy world almost, um, where you're sort of building from scratch, right? Like it could be Westeros or uh, from Game of Thrones, or um, it could be the culture from Ian M. Banks' novels. It's, it's so distant and alien um, that you can, you know, you can do a lot of fancy things like, for example, I have a technology, a very hand wavy technology in this book called Gravity Mesh, which can be installed under the skin of animals and allow them to fly. How would that work? I don't know. Like, Where would the energy go? How would you not explode when you used it? Um, That's, you know, 60,000 years took care of that. Um, On the other hand, um, I spent a lot of time talking to geologists and urban planners about this book and worked very hard to make the geology of the world and the ecologies of the world extremely realistic. And also the engineering practices that are going on. You know, these these people are distant from us. Um, They look different from us. Some of them are not uh, homo sapiens, but they still have the same kind of concerns we do. They wanna build communities where they can care for each other. They want to have access to water and food without too much interference. They want to um, figure out new kinds of communities and new ways of um, relating to the land around them. And so we see some very old conflicts in this story that are very recognizable, everything from you know, romantic conflicts where like love goes bad, despite the fact that you're in a shiny future of genetically engineered everything like you can still have like a rough time if you fall in love with the wrong person. Um, And we also see a very familiar clash between corporate interests and um, governmental interests, for lack of a better term. I mean, this is a world where there's not a lot of government. And so the characters are kind of rediscovering government because they've run into trouble with the real estate company that's developing this planet. Because, of course, what, what else, how else would you fund the development you of the planet? I have to
0: admit, Annalie, that this, this is the aspect of the future I find the least convincing. It seems a little parochial. I mean, real estate, markets, corporations, these are all things that have only come about in the last 50 or 100 years. Couldn't you have... Dazzled a little bit more on that front, imagined entirely different economic systems, entirely different ways of thinking about land and value. M- maybe you you have, maybe I'm being unfair, but the notion of, of real estate seems a, a particularly parochial word. It's hard to imagine that in 60,000 years, people will still be using that word if they use language at all.
1: It's true, Uh, I probably should have written this book in some kind of computer binary language to kind of appeal to the the readers from 60,000 years hence. But I I am living in the present, I'm not a wizard. So um, I can't uh, can't speak to the people who will actually live in 60,000 years um, as much as it would be a delightful thought experiment. Um, So this is really a book about thinking through different kinds of government different kinds of community, some of which are absolutely impossible in our world now. For example, there's a community of self-governing sentient trains who make up the public transit network on the planet. Um, Sounds a little bit like
0: Denmark, Annelie.
1: Yeah, I'd love to have a conversation with a train in Denmark. Um, I was actually thinking of the Melbourne train system uh, when I designed those trains, because Melbourne... Uh, in Australia has one of the most extensive uh, streetcar networks in the world. It's a it's a really lovely public transit network, and I've ridden on it and uh, was quite delighted. Um, but you know, it's it's a big question that science fiction writers get a lot, which is, you know, why don't you show us, um, you know, what's really going to happen in the future? Why do you keep using terminology and ideas from the present? And that's because science fiction is written by people living in the present. And so our stories, by necessity, reflect the world around us. And we use the language of the world around us to get people to kind of open a few doors in their imagination and think about how that would evolve. And as someone who has written a lot about in my nonfiction about deep time, about um, uh, archaeology, my previous book was about uh, the archaeology of ancient cities. Yeah, it's um, a wonderful book. Of...
0: Four lost cities, and you've also written *Autonomous*, a very successful uh, science fiction book. *Scatter, Adapt, and Remain*: How humans will survive a mass extinction. So you've written extensively, both in fictional and non-fictional terms.
1: Yeah. So I've thought a lot about these questions around historical change that you're that you're raising, like you know, why why would we still have capitalism in the future and that sort of thing, and you know. Will we actually have it? I don't know, but what we can see uh, from looking back through human history, including looking back as far as something like 60,000 years is that humans have always explored. They've always exploited the environment around them as far back as we can see in the record where we look at toolkits of humans from even a million years ago. So these are early humans. Um, there was just a discovery of a, of an obsidian um, toolmaking workshop uh, from that period. So humans have always been interested in this tool making. We've always traded with each other. Um, and at this point, uh, in the future, I could imagine something like hypercapitalism being wedded to this this really deep need to kind of engage with our environment and change it. Something that goes back very far in humanity, this this urge to to kind of remake the world to the way we like it. Um, And the reason I wanted to situate it within real estate is because this is a book about property. And it's about thinking about what, what do we mean when we say property? What does it mean to possess property? Are there many different ways to have property? Which indeed we see in the book, there are many forms of property ownership. This, the company that owns this planet is just one of you know many possible systems. Um, and so I really, I wanted to use language that would be recognizable to people reading the book, but changed enough that it allowed us to kind of get outside of our of our everyday thinking about real estate and property and start imagining, well, what would it mean if a company could – because this company doesn't just own the planet. They own all the workers on the planet because they come to the planet and they're not going to pay to bring a bunch of It over. sounds
0: like Amazon right now almost.
1: Yeah, I mean – There is a little bit of that feeling to it. There's also a bit of feeling of the Disney Corporation as well. There's a little bit of references to that. Um, So it's really, it's a thought experiment trying to get us to think about the institutions around us, um, but get, like I said, get a little bit outside of them by putting them in this thought experiment about a far future planet and the workers there.
0: Uh, Property, of course, is, foundational in theories of democracy, Lockean notions of democracy, the notion that we create ourselves and then we create the land around us, which is the foundations at least for American democracy. There is a a rich literature people challenging Locke. I I assume you read David Graeber for your book, uh, a different way of thinking about the human condition and, and real estate. What's the technology and terraform is this idea of uplifting. Does that change how we think about the consequence of, of, I mean, there's no labor, sort of 18th, 19th, 20th century notions of labor, but how does all this new technology change how we think about property and rights and ownership?
1: Well, one of the things that is going on in this book is that there are many different kinds of people. Like I said, the corporations um, that manufacture life, they can use synthetic biology or some futuristic version of synthetic biology to make a moose that is has a human equivalent mind um, or a naked mole rat with a human equivalent mind. And later we meet a cat who's an investigative journalist. So there's a Presumably lot of different- vice
0: versa as well. We can make humans with the minds of rats.
1: Yeah, and we sort of see a little bit about that um, in this world where there are um, kind there's a kind of caste system around intelligence and who's considered to be a person versus who is considered to be more lowly um, and therefore undeserving of uh, various kinds of rights. Um, so one of the things I really wanted to play with in this book was imagining technologies, that would allow us to respond to environmental changes in real time or, or something approaching real time. Because one of the many problems that we've been having on Earth right now with grappling with questions around land management, climate change, habitat destruction, um, is that the feedback loop is slow. You know, we do something in the 19th century and it comes home to roost in the 20th century. You know, we we emit a bunch of carbon and it isn't until another generation later that we that we start to see the effects. And of course, now we are starting to see some of the more dramatic effects of climate change. But we're not even in the really bad part, according to um, scientists. You know, we're really just at the very beginning of what's going to be quite dramatic. And so I I was like, okay, what kind of how could we start, you know, creating people or creating senses that would let us understand, oh, this forest is in trouble right now, even though we can't see it with our eyes. Like if we knew the like pH balance of the soil, if we knew about the particulate matter, we would be like, Oh, this is not good. We need to fix this. So this planet is full of microsensors that are biodegradable that are constantly doing environmental readings, everything from, like I said, like soil readings, atmospheric readings, um, health of animals and plants. And the main character that we meet in the in the first part of the book, Destry, named after the character from Destry Rides Again, she has um, ports all over her hands that allow her to just press her hands into the soil or against any surface and network with all of these sensors and ask them basically, what's the health of this ecosystem here? And because of that, the time that, that time distortion that we experience on earth between what we do and, the, and the, the way it affects the environment, that goes away. She knows instantly if something is out of balance in the environment, uh, what needs to be dealt with to fix it. Um, and that's kind of her job. She sort of solves environmental mysteries to figure out what's what's making the environment be out of balance. And, and so the sense that we get as we travel with Destry through this world is that a lot of these artificial boundaries that we try to create between ourselves on Earth now and the environment or ourselves and other kinds of non-human animals, those boundaries are fake. We start to realize that actually we are part of this environment. We're in dialogue with this environment. Um, Humans and non-human animals are not that different. And um, and so, like I said, I wanted to, to suggest to people how, through technology, we might be able to have what I would consider to be a healthier relationship to our environment, being more sensitive and aware of what's actually what kind of inputs we're really putting in when i say sensitive i don't mean vibes like i don't mean like oh we're gonna feel happy or sad i mean literally we will have data (laughs) that is streaming into us telling us like fyi like if you look at this hard data here is now a spreadsheet showing you how you are currently damaging this wetland
0: yeah again it sounds quite contemporary it sounds like kind of thing that Apple might develop next year. Um, You you talk about um, collapsing time in the future. What about the reverse? You have the idea of uh, the planet becoming a character. Um, I talked earlier about uplifting animals. Um, 60,000 years ago, humans, of course, were just another species over that 60,000 years. They've done a pretty good job obliterating many of the other species as well as c- coming close to destroying the planet or at least this planet. Um in the future, will these other species, will they have memories? Will there be a collective notion of of, of the crimes of human beings? Uh, both from the point of view of these animals and also perhaps from the planet? Will there be a, an equivalent of the Hague Court of Justice, which humans will have to appear at?
1: <laughs> um, that would be amazing. Funny that, that I, I thought it was funny the phrase that you used, that 60,000 years ago, he, Homo sapiens was just another species. FYI. We're still just another species. We have a lot of narcissism. Yeah, no, I but didn't we're mean we're well, But we're not, not actually... In
0: terms of our impact on the environment, in terms but, of our impact on other
1: quote-unquote
0: sure, species. So, sure,
1: sure. But I, I think it's funny because I do think that consciously or unconsciously, a lot of us carry around this idea that like, oh, well, we used to just be animals, but now we're some kind of fancy super animal, um, yeah. which we're not. And um, if you look back at... Uh, through geological time, we are not the first species to completely transform the environment and to radically transform the atmosphere on this planet. Um, If it weren't for cyanobacteria, you know, half a billion years ago, we wouldn't have all this nice oxygen on the planet. So cyanobacteria wrecked it for everybody who didn't like 21% oxygen. Um, And so, again, we we are just another species. We're We're just another species that thinks we're super great. Um, But in answer to your question about, you know, will humans have to answer to their crimes? um, You know, in this book, we do see uh, a lot of I I had a lot of fun imagining how non-human animals would relate to humans as they uh, learned about human history. Because, of course, it's far enough in the future that you have to be quite a you have to be like the equivalent of like an ancient historian or a paleontologist or something to really kind of get into what happened back on earth back in the day um and there is there is a lot of stuff in this book about how dogs in particular are very distrustful of homo sapiens and are really angry at homo sapiens that's for great getting-
0: i love that because we just did um we just i just did an interview this morning actually with dean know, he's a best-selling author um suspense writer and he's a big fan of dogs but maybe dogs aren't such big fans of us <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, in the in the book, we we learn that dogs um, are very resentful of having been domesticated. And um, on the plant on this planet Saski that the book is about, there's actually a um, kind of a free colony of dogs. And they really don't want to have anything to do with the homo sapiens. And occasionally they'll maybe like do a favor to someone who's connected with the homo sapiens. But by and large, they're really pissed off. They're really So there
0: is a degree of that. justice we get in some ways. We we no longer have our quote unquote best friend. What about the idea of, say, plants claiming in, in the same way as we have the sort of culture wars of different groups claiming this or that? Um, Will will plants in sixty thousand years? Will they be reminding us? And I use that word carefully, I guess. All non plant species that that they're they're the heroic drivers of progress. They're the ones who created oxygen.
1: Yeah, and they're the ones who really helped with the carbon cycle and like you know broke up the crust of the planet on Earth. Um, I think so. I mean, it's interesting to think about. plant consciousness. Um, Hope Jarin, who wrote the amazing book, Lab Girl, um, she is a, she studies um, ancient plant life on earth. And um, in that book, she writes incredibly movingly about plant consciousness, basically, or what we might consider to be plant consciousness if we decided to really expand the definition of consciousness. And she talks about how plants communicate through chemicals, they um, signal to each other and to insects when there's various kinds of danger, like, you know, some other kind of insect that's eating them. Um, And, you know, plants respond to light. There's evidence that plants do kind of math where they are figuring out how much light there is and when they should bloom and things like that. So I, I love the idea of, of thinking about what non- animal life might be thinking about when it comes to humans um i don't deal with it in uh in this novel um i do have some stuff about rivers but the river is not not communicating um with the characters in language but there are clear moments where the characters are getting a lot of data from the plants in the environment the plants can certainly communicate through these sensors um, but yeah I could imagine like a whole other book about plants where it's like some kind of trifid situation
0: there's <laughs> a biblical quality I, I sense to your to your thinking do you have a religious background
1: no i I'm totally just a socialist background this is kind of religious I guess do but, you uh, think that
0: there is any driving force of the universe do you get the sense where so I, I asked um Kuntz when we were talking whether he believed in the idea of souls and Religion. He didn't, I'm not sure if he's formally religious, but he believed in the idea of the soul. Is there something mysterious? Will will we we'll, we'll be closer to that mystery in 60,000 years, Annalie?
1: I think there is obviously something out there mysterious that can't be measured with our current instruments and with science. I think there's a whole bunch of stuff to our lives. Culture is not measurable scientifically. Um, and I, I tend to think of... Um, you know, when I think of things that are spiritual, I think of moments of um, community uh, coming together to, to do something that people couldn't do on their own. I think of that as like a religious or an awe-inspiring experience, um, whether it's just having a giant dance party or like building an incredible structure. Um, so will we be closer to it? I don't know. I think... We're always gonna be looking for it, and I think that's part of what makes us kind of badass: is that we're always looking for a way to experience awe, and looking for a way to find each other and to find beauty in each other. And um, and that, you know, is kind of hopeful. I think we also figure out lots of ways to mess each other up too. So um, I can't imagine that we'll ever reach a utopia, but I think we can do better.
0: Well, speaking of utopias, it sounds like the vision you have is almost a, a technological communitarian utopia, which is the kind of thing that lots of people in San Francisco, in your neighbourhood, know value already. Sort of outlining—is um, that right? It's communi- communitarianism—the vision that you articulate: this this community, not just of humans, but of our relations with things and with other life forms?
1: I mean, I'm certainly in favor of communities. Um, I don't think of this book as being particularly about technology as part of the community. I mean, a lot of this book is really about how we change our relationships with um, other life forms, biological life forms, uh, or how we change our relationship with a giant rock floating through space. Um, and we use technology, but technology isn't foregrounded. My characters aren't, um, techno obsessives. They're much more interested in soil samples or how Mm. to make public transit work for everyone. Um, which is a whole other quite like urban planning is, is a whole other ineffable, uh, type of endeavor. So I'm, You know, I think my vision here is much more about just trying to imagine what it would be like if we had communities that were designed to serve the public and that centered the public rather than centering leaders. And we see lots of different kinds. I mean, this is a a really big, sprawling book. We see, um, you know, examples of Uh, authoritarianism. We see examples of kind of a a weird kind of democracy. We see kind of mixed stuff. Um, And I'm hoping that readers will just read it and be like, oh, I want to go invent my own government now. Um, That's really my hope is that it helps people come up with ways out of like the thinking that we're stuck in right now. How
0: how, how do you feel about that kind of thinking when it comes to the contemporary tech community. Peter Thiel, of course, pioneered and championed the idea of founding communities outside physical United States. Is is that something that you're suspicious of or you're supportive of? I know you've been involved with the Electronic Freedom Foundation, the EFF, which has also championed some of this stuff.
1: Um, I'm not sure which stuff you mean that the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, was championing that had to do with Peter Thiel but uh no no
0: I'm not connecting the EFF with Thiel but I I, I'm I'm suggesting that that kind of libertarian ideal of uh, on the California on the west coast of founding offshore communities is something that's quite popular I'm guessing you're not a big fan of that though
1: you know I mean this is a long-standing dream in California right like this is part of what the whole state was founded on was this idea that people would come out here and stake a claim and do whatever the heck they wanted with it um and that idea comes straight out of colonialism and you know uh i am not a fan of colonialism i think probably most of us have have given up on uh thinking that colonialism had anything to offer so i mean i I see
0: these days of that
1: yeah so i i kind of i see that strand of thought in Silicon Valley, you know, existing right alongside, you know, very utopian kind of techno-socialism and sexual liberation. And, you know, California has been home to a lot of uh, innovation when it comes to how we wanna design our communities. And that's, I think, why we see so much innovation around tech, so many weird new ideas about economics, even if they are failed ideas, it's still people trying to dream up just weird new crap. And it's super exciting. And again, like that's part of what I'm hoping like people can come away from this book with is that sense of like, you know, we don't have to keep doing things this way. And I don't want to encourage people to, you know, go, you know, uh, take charge of sea land or whatever. I think that's in some ways, that's just the same old idea. Like I said, it's kind of a very 19th century idea of, of reinventing ourselves. But I do think that um, there's hope that, you know, by just constantly innovating and and remembering that technological and scientific innovation happen right along with cultural innovation, they aren't separate, they're very, very connected, Um, that we can start heading in a direction where, like I said, my real goal here is to get people thinking about how to center the public when we invent new kinds of community. And that could mean something as simple as if you're designing software, how do you center the user? Um, Or it could mean if you're designing a new kind of city council, how do you answer to your citizens uh, in a way that's innovative and in a way that uh, takes into account weird needs that they have that you might not have known. And all of this stuff is super important right now because we're dealing with climate change that's going to be shifting our actual physical infrastructure and that's going to mean that we absolutely need to change our governments and we need to change our technologies that we're using to handle massive amounts of water to handle wildfires and again i'm talking about california here i mean right, obviously yeah,
0: and sixty thousand. Know, so so let's yeah. end with uh, with imagining the life or the world or the planet or the universe in sixty thousand years time of course the web space telescope is beginning to tell us according to the post uh humanity the history of everything i'm not sure if anything will ever tell us the history of everything uh, <laughs> but it's certainly telling us um apparently the universe first stars and eventually of course we'll discover that there are many universes uh, just thinking in a dazzling way, perhaps, Anna Lee. Uh, imagine the world in, or imagine something in sixty thousand years' time. What won't we know? What will we still need to discover?
1: I mean, pretty much everything. <laughs> I think. I think we'll know. You know, a little bit more about our. Um, I hope we will know more about the universe for sure. I hope we will have. We will have visited more worlds that are outside of our solar system. But what we won't know, I mean, you know, we're always going to be finding new shit that we don't know. That's the beauty of science. Like every time you discover something, you discover 12 more things that you don't know. So we are not going to know how to have a perfect world in 60,000 years, but we might have a few more clues about how to get there.